Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, who is the unidentified man in Room 20? That's the question in that podcast. Then the police in upstate New York home in on a suspect in a child's death. But is he the killer? We'll discuss HBO's docuseries, Who Killed Garrett Phillips? Joining me to get that done and a whole lot more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and sexy voice tonk, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady and back-to-school shopping champion, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. That's me. <laughs> See what happens when you tell me stuff before we start recording? It makes <laughs> it into okay. the show. I was trying to be brief. I was trying to be brief, Rebecca. <laughs> and finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our very own Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Wow. Now, <laughs> Kevin, Come, some, coming strong. It's been it's been two weeks off. It has, but we are almost at the end of our biweekly schedule. We have one more break, and then we go back to weekly. So it's almost over, fans. It's almost over. Our long national nightmare <laughs> of biweekly crime writers on is almost How over. How do we ever get through this? Now, Kevin, um, we have an opportunity here because very discerning listeners of our show might notice the show sounds a tiny bit different this week. So I thought it's a good opportunity for us to do a, uh, in our sort of like plugs and promotion section here, a Kevin Flynn health update because it also explains the slightly different sound of our show. So how are you doing, Kevin? And what's going on with you? Well, as, as you guys know, I have been dealing with thyroid cancer and my, uh, my final treatment is coming up this week. Mm-hmm. In a couple days. I've had my thyroid removed, and uh, some of the tumor got into the blood vessels. Mm-hmm. So it means that the tissue in the cells probably traveled throughout my body. But um, thyroid tissue is the only tissue in the body that absorbs iodine. Right. And we have radioactive iodine. So what I've been doing for the past two weeks is I've been on a low iodine diet. Mm. So it means obviously no iodized salt, but means no dairy, no egg yolks, no bread, Processed foods, a whole bunch of stuff. Eating like, like a healthy seafood. person. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> not eating like an animal. Okay, whatever. And starving the iodine. And then on Wednesday, I will be taking a pill. And uh, that one pill is radioactive. And the remaining tissue should absorb the radioactive iodine and be killed off and should Photoshop it right out of my body. And you will be radioactive i will be radioactive for a period of time yeah for what does that mean it means for two days i'm going to be in a lead-lined room right like they're gonna what yeah it's like quarantine it's like chernobyl oh my goodness because i am radioactive so it means is there a song about that there is yeah i think there's a few the firm is that who (laughs) yes good that's a good poll yeah (laughs) it's deep dive well i'm not uptight not unattractive Turn me on tonight. Wait, wait, can you just give me a quick review of the song so I have permission to play a clip of it on the show right now? What do you think of that song, Kevin? It was great. <laughs> it's, it's like the guys from Zeppelin and uh, Bad Company. Yeah, yeah, with a lot of extra guitar stuff in there. Um, yeah. so, anyway, my cancer. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'll be radioactive, so my sweat and my... 
saliva and urine and everything like that coming off my body is going to be radioactive. So I got to be essentially quarantined for two days. And when I come home, I have to also be somewhat quarantined because I'll still have trace amounts. So I have to sleep in my own bed, you know, use my own bathroom. When I go to the bathroom, I got to sit down and flush twice and Mm. wipe it out and Mm. get all the stuff out there. Shower twice a day to get everything out of me. So, um, you know, the way things have just been going so well for me, uh, I can't imagine I don't mean to laugh, that happening. Yeah. But like every, t- every time something isn't supposed to go wrong, it does. They're like, oh, your, does. your voice will be fine. No. Three months later. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. Yeah. Uh, what else does it mean for you and I? Like, why does the show sound different? That's how we started this conversation. Well, <laughs> Studio C is actually literally a goddamn closet. That's so, right. Uh, one of the things I can't be that close to Rebecca. Right. But uh, so we need a bigger space. Mm. So we've set up the studio in one of our in the office upstairs, which is a bigger room. Um, it's not soundproof. It's not dampened. So there's a little bit of an echo in here, but it gives us uh, you know some physical distance between us, so we can still record, and uh, Rebecca doesn't have to worry about um, getting radioactive, getting Chernobyl. Right. Also, I'm having surgery on my leg in a couple of weeks and I'm not going to be able to go down the stairs. So it serves two purposes. That's right. Yes. The broken leg is still not healing. Thank you very much for your health update, Kevin. Um, I'm sure that is what all the true crime fans wanted to hear was our various health travails. But, you know, we're all pulling for you, especially me. And um, yeah. I'm looking forward to not being irradiated. So thank you for agreeing to move the studio to this larger space. So you guys, you guys want to come over and, and maybe like... Uh I could like rub up against you while I'm radioactive. And <laughs> Maybe, because I'm thinking that probably you're going to leave your pants on in this new state. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll come over, Kevin. Yes. I'll come over. There actually is room for you guys. It's an yeah. actual room. Yeah, when I go to, an when I go into the hospital, like I, I have to throw out my clothes afterwards and the stuff that I bring what? in. Because it's really oh my God. radioactive. Or they say, or you can keep it if it's something like your telephone. They, like you keep, only you will keep that close to you. <gasps> Or you can bring this in stuff kind of if you leave it in your trunk for two weeks. Mm. So the half-life goes away. So, so you're not going to have a phone? No, I'm going to have a phone. Mm. But you cannot have my phone. Fine. <laughs> you can't see what I'm doing. <laughs> this reminds me of that show we watched. What was that Stephen King spinoff show where then out in the woods, the guy had the van with like the secret yeah. room? Castle Rock. Castle Rock. Yeah. I feel like that's the room I'm kind of envisioning you in, Kevin. This like soundproof radioactive room. Oh, jeez. I don't, Maybe it'll give you some writing inspiration. Well, I don't know. I mean, wow. Jeez, yeah. Kevin. Yeah. Well, there's somebody in there right now it's, getting the same thing done. And, you know, so yeah. I wish him or her well. And then I'm up next. So are these kind of the same pills that you end up taking when, like you all know, we all live in New Hampshire and yeah. we have our nuclear power plant. And at the beginning of the school year, we always get that thing that's like sign for the radioactive iodide pills or whatever if the nuke plant melts down that you're going to take is it this sounds somewhat similar it's it's not the same kind this is i131 okay. i believe that pill kind of does the opposite it protects your thyroid okay. from radiation yeah it it, it it it's so okay. it isn't going to kill the thyroid cells or the thyroid itself it absorbs enough of the iodine that the thyroid won't absorb any more. Yeah. So the okay. radioactive stuff coming in okay. will not, you know, there's, I guess it's okay. full. Right. And I, yeah. if I'm, I could be 100% wrong. There's a scientist out there listening who will tweet at yeah. me and say, right. you're an idiot. But I do know that's something like, it's like kind of the opposite. But the, right, the iodine okay. you take in the event of a nuclear uh, issue is because of the thyroid. The thyroid right. is what it's, it's yeah. like. Because the, the thyroid loves iodine. Yeah. It's all the thyroid is the only thing it, it reacts to radiation. It, the, the thyroid yeah. is like a blob for iodine. It's like yeah. more. So, huh. yeah. Radiation and iodine. Yes. Thus ends oh. the totally ignorant science lesson that we are giving on this podcast. Like, how do these people survive so long? <laughs> Speaking of ignorant and not ignorant science lessons, a uh, personal professional plug. I really do encourage anybody who was a fan of Bear Brook to listen to Taylor Quimby's new podcast, Patient Zero. I did not have any editorial input in it at all. But of course, I do work at NHPR, which made the podcast, and I'm really proud of it. I think it's great. Same team that made Bear Brook. If you're interested in medical mysteries, check out Patient Zero. And thus ends the uh, plug, personal professional. But one more thing. <laughs> Today's Patreon after show. Yeah. Today's Patreon after show is a must listen for fans of this podcast who have followed along as we have. Don't give it away. 
perhaps stepped into areas of feuding with other popular true crime podcasts and things that we've been really critical of over the years. Something happened at a conference I just attended, Podcast Movement, that I am dying to tell you guys about. And you can hear about it on the Patreon after show that is coming out at the same time as this podcast. So go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you can hear what happened. It was a pretty astonishing event at Podcast Movement. I know what it is. It's worth uh, five bucks. <laughs> but Laura and Toby don't. They haven't heard I know. it yet. Yeah, let's, let's get this podcast done with so I can hear the story. I want to know. That's what I'm really waiting for is the scoop on Podcast Movement. All right. Well, let's move on and start the show then, shall we? Okay, thumbs up for the first one, thumbs down for the second one. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Wow, Toby. Spoiler that's alert. like fast. <laughs> Toby's moving fast. This is a big deal right now, people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that in. I don't care if it's a spoiler. <laughs> I don't even I don't even know which one we're doing first. I'm pretty sure that was an accurate spoiler though. The narrative of this case has been simple. It's about 30 minutes in Potsdam. It was around five o'clock. I got a phone call. Something's happened to Garrett. HBO continues its summer of true crime with a documentary, Who Killed Garrett Phillips? The 12-year-old boy was strangled in his upstate New York apartment after school, and the perpetrator escaped from a third-floor window. Though the evidence is thin, investigators lock on the mother's ex-boyfriend, Nick Hillary. The scene was handled as a crime scene. The mother is Tandy Cyrus. Tandy's ex-boyfriend, Nick Hillary, was suspicious. Garrett didn't like him. Those two butted heads. We have a strong suspect at this point. You're going to hear the sense of the way you relationship. You've got some problems. Hillary is responsible for Garrett's death. No doubt in my mind he did it. Nick Hillary. 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 Next the guy. I'm 100% certain. Using telephone recordings, videotapes, and new interviews, the documentary shows the irregularities in the Phillips investigation. Reminiscent of the staircase, Who Killed Garrett Phillips is a look at race and justice in small town America. As a person of color, you're told, don't talk to the police. Nick called me saying, the cops won't let me leave. You don't strip search someone naked for anything. You do have to raise questions as to why they chose Nick Hillary. Spoiler alert, we are going to pretty much completely be spoiling Who Killed Garrett Phillips. That's only a two-part series. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, please go to the time code listed in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review, or just rewind about a minute to hear what Toby thinks of this documentary. Now, um, Kevin, you're the one who wrote the note here about elements of the staircase sort of being reminiscent that right. we were reminded of when we watched this documentary. Talk about what reminded you of the staircase about who killed Garrett Phillips. Well, it's kind of the inside look at the defense where we have a, a defendant on trial and we get to see a little bit of, you know, the, the, the lawyer meetings and, you know, being the, the fly on the wall and also having access to the defendant in a very casual, um, very intimate, uh, talking about their case and their life. And I don't think this is as good as The Staircase, Yeah, but it, it did have some of those same things and did have the same kind of suspense for me because I did not know how this trial uh, ended up. Right. And also, this was a very well-funded um, defense because the lawyers basically volunteered to take the case. These very powerful lawyers who like would fly up and down from New York City on their private jet. Yeah, what the fuck, man? <laughs> to Potsdam, New York, which, you know, I've, I'm sorry, upstate New York, I've repeatedly disparaged you on this show. But as a former New Yorker, I have very strong feelings about that part of the state. And I think this documentary represents that part of the state fairly well in terms of like characterizing the culture there. But that's why it reminded me of it, too, was because we got that into look at the defense, but also because there were plenty of talking heads on the prosecution side. We had the cop. We mm -hmm. had the prosecutor. We had people who were friends and family of the of uh, the victim, even though we didn't quite have like a ton of like first person stuff from the victim's mom, we had a tiny bit. But that side was well represented as well, which reminded me of the staircase also. Now, Laura, you're really enjoying the HBO summer of true crime, right? I am. Yeah. You know what? Um, so far, the two that we've watched have been, you know, cases that aren't necessarily like black and white, cut and dry. Um, they've both been pretty maddening um, in terms of 
rage-inducing moments. Um, this particular one, the guy that was the detective apparently is now the police chief. I just started the couch to 5K and I can like envision his face while I'm running <laughs> um, to keep me going because I disliked him. But I just, I like that it's like a two-part. It's it's not super long. They're done in such a way that you've got, you know, I felt like different viewpoints represented and cases that in this case in particular, I felt like, you know, when you look at it from the outside in is a pretty obvious miscarriage of justice in terms of how the case proceeded. And that's, also, this poor family, it's like, you know, they're thinking this is going to be resolved. And now this case is unresolved because these cops were so like gung ho to jump on this guy, which wasn't necessarily the person they should have been, I don't think, focusing on. I mean, when you had that sketchy detective um, boyfriend guy there. John Jones. But I, I, I am enjoying these, um, the HBO things. I just think they're well done. And uh they really make you think. Now, Toby, one of your notes to me is you said that maybe it's it's the shorter format of this documentary or maybe it's just the way that it was done. You feel like the story is a little bit incomplete. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is, for me, the big weakness in it is that it sort of hints at some things about Nick that it doesn't follow through on at all. And, and I think it needed to because one of the big issues supposedly although I don't spend a whole lot of time on it is that Garrett really didn't like Nick hmm. and then you get Garrett's uncle at one point towards the beginning saying something about how just going to school and then coming home and having to spend your time in your room with like no music or no TV like that's not a way to grow up and then nothing else comes of that right. and then there's right at the very end something about that is referenced again it, it seems like there is that's evidence of a dynamic that seemed like it was probably pretty critical as far as how people viewed Nick, who suspected him of being guilty, but which they don't pick up at all. And this is, this is not to say that I think that that would have shown that Nick was guilty because I think it, it's pretty clear that he's not. But there is like this weird sort of Unless you just say, well, he's a black guy in a mostly white town, and therefore everybody in town thinks he killed this person. It seemed to me that there was a little bit more of a dynamic going on there that they don't really go into, although they sort of nod towards it a couple of times, if that makes sense. No, it it does make sense. It did feel like we were told this was a potentially wrongful prosecution without being told why at first the prosecution happened except for these hints from the uncle. The only other thing is that they also like kind of tease a little bit that he was a womanizer. Like they talk about when they talk to the assistant coach and he talks about how I believe he says something about how he's left with different women or whatever. And, and, you know, he's married for at least some of it. Right. So that was like another thing that kind of, you know, kind of flashed by but wasn't explored at all. Right. Because, you know, they really wanted to paint this, like, overwhelmingly sympathetic portrait, which, again, I mean, he's, he's a falsely accused guy. And, you know, he's clearly the protagonist in all this, and I, and I think rightfully so. But it seems as though there was more, more complications to the situation than, than maybe we were let in on. I can actually speak to that a little bit, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, I have... An inside take on this story, which I didn't know I had when we started watching this because I didn't know from the name what the case was. But one of the sources in this documentary is Natasha Haverty, who was a public radio reporter at North Country Public Radio at the time this case was going on. And she did a lot of the primary reporting on this. She's in the documentary. She filmed this documentary while she worked with me at New Hampshire Public Radio. She, I remember, took some time off to go back and continue during this trial reporting on this story. And that was when they filmed this documentary. And she talked about this case a lot in the newsroom, kind of around the time that this was all happening. And my understanding is there isn't more than what's in this documentary. That, yes, he was uh, with another woman when he got together with Tandy, but she was also still like sort of in a semi-relationship with the cop, and that kind of comes out in the documentary. And it was really just a question of like, her kid, from what I understand, was just kind of unhappy with like 
his mom being in relationships with other men. And I'm sure it was a complicated dynamic. I mean, my own kids have been in blended families and it always is complicated. But there was never any intimation of like abuse or anything like that. It was just like the kid didn't like him and he didn't get along well with the kid and that interfered with the relationship. And it it wasn't more complicated than that. That's my understanding. But that in the post-murder narrative, those things became more important to the side that wanted to, you know, come up with motive, come up with some reason that's my understanding of the case that's interesting because she actually i felt like was a really compelling character in this natasha she yeah i i especially towards the end when you know she talked about you know basically reporting the story about the ex-boyfriend cop and his level of involvement with the investigation as this was unfolding Mm. Um, and how it was something that she had to do. It sounded like she had kind of did it and then she left town because it was so touchy. My last story for North Country Public Radio was this story. It sounds weird and paranoid, but it wasn't a coincidence that we aired it when I left town. I mean, when we watch this documentary and we see this guy in the interview with Tandy. What'd you think about that? I'm like, what the fuck? Real, like, are you fucking kidding me? This is tainting the entire investigation right now, even though this is like a parent interview. And I mean, I can't even imagine what this woman was going through. But that just definitely seemed like protocol was not being followed there. And it's kind of hard because you're like, yeah, they're throwing him out there almost as a suspect in the way that it was reported. But I felt like it took a lot of courage to report that story. Right. Well, what was interesting about that scene was, A, yes, he should not have been there in the interview and the cop even admits that later. But I think that the more important thing is here, because I believe what we learned in the documentary is that the DNA basically cleared him too. Mm-hmm. And I think the story is why was he treated differently than Nick Hillary? And I think the most stark example of that is the photographing of the suspect scene. I don't normally do strip search. This was near state FIU. We normally do searches of people's persons, and this was normal procedure. Uh, trying to document injuries pursuant to the murder of a 12 year old boy. Um, there were other people that were photographed nude as well. And I pointed that out in the deposition, um, but. Who else was photographed? And Garrett Phillips was. So here we have a white suspect who's a cop, who you know on paper I think uh, is more compelling as a suspect at the time in real time than Nick Hillary. He's brought in just his like feet and hands are photographed, where Nick Hillary in what was one of optically the worst criminal justice scenes I ever saw was strip searched and photographed nude in the office in which he was being interrogated. Toby, what did you think of that disparity and what did you think of just that scene and what it said about these investigators? Uh, yeah, there's nothing good. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're humiliating him, letting him know that he doesn't have control over his circumstances. That was very difficult to watch. And then when the detective is like, he, was, he wasn't the only person who we had to strip down. They're like, oh, yeah, who else? He's like, well, you know, Garrett. Mm. It's like, what What are you talking yeah, about? That was, yeah, that was kind of a ridiculous line because they, I mean, that's yeah. common protocol in any murder case that they take pictures of the, per- the deceased person. So I thought that was an absurd. Yeah, yeah I think they admitted to that. No one else had ever been strip searched strip search and photographed in their police department like that. Like at first I'm watching it and I'm like thinking, well, okay, search warrant for the bunker then. All right. Well, I guess that sounds like the next thing that I would do if I were a detective. And then, all right, well, okay, I guess maybe that makes sense. But then when, when you find out that they never did that with anybody, you know, like, whoa, okay. I, I'm sure there are cases where it's perfectly legitimate to take photographs of a suspect's body but it's done in a, you know, it has to be done in a proper manner. Not just, you know, here's a bunch of guys standing around while you just go in the office and stand in the corner. 
I was so upset by full, that. Yeah. It was so, I, I turned to you and I said, this is what white supremacy and law enforcement looks mm-hmm. like. This is what it looks like. I was so upset. I actually, it was, it was near the end of episode one, right? Yeah. And I was like, I can't fucking watch this anymore. I went to bed and I was like, you need to tell me what happens at the end of the episode. I was so upset by that scene. I found yeah. it incredibly disturbing to see, especially with the camera angle kind yeah. of up in the corner. It was just so out of the ordinary. That, it like, was. Like you could tell right And it was then. so stark. Yeah. Um, now, Kevin, you uh, and I talked about this, and we just handed out a minute ago. Uh, John Jones, mm-hmm. he is not only an alternative suspect that was like briefly a suspect considered by law enforcement. He's actually a character in the documentary. He's one of the people who gives two ways, like extensive two ways in the documentary. How do you feel about the documentary's treatment of him? I don't. I don't really know how I feel about him. I think, like personally, I'm I'm not crazy about him. I think he just he comes off as sort of very. Uh, skeevy, a little bit, a little too jacked, and a little, you know, a little wide, crazy eyed. I think it's a psychotic to show up at a new boyfriend's house, yeah, to confront a new boyfriend about your ex girlfriend dating him. That is just like a psychotic thing to right, do, right? Right. Um, you know, I have my personal reservations about him. I I don't know whether or not the documentary does a disservice by implying, ever so subtly, that he's the real killer because of you know the background. I mean, if you want to say anything, he should have been looked at harder because he had, there were certainly more in his past that made him look like a, a viable suspect than Nick. But we know that today that his DNA isn't under right. Garrett's fingers. He was walking his dog on video at the time of the murder. Which was not scrutinized the same way that Nick's car appearing was scrutinized. It's so weird. Like, yeah. They had the same shot. You know, I will say... <laughs> of, of, they, of Garrett skateboarding the, by the him. The one thing that really bothered me the whole time, though, about Nick's was the parking lot thing. To be there and then to leave almost the same time and to go the other way. I found that troubling. Not me. I mean, the rest of the... I didn't think the rest of it held up, but I had a hard time with the, okay, well, what was that all about? He said what it was about. I know, I know. It just it's seems a small a little, town. It's a like, small town. I don't okay. know. But they show they show Garrett going down the street, scootering, scootering past the hospital, yeah. and they say, "There he goes." But I, they never say, "And there goes the car." Right. I mean, did they just forget that in the documentary? Did no one just point out? Well, you're saying he's following him, but where is he? You don't see him. You following see him leave him. the parking lot, but you don't see him following him. So, right. I don't know. That was to me that was, was a missing piece for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to admit though, it was problematic for his defense. Right. You know what wasn't problematic for his defense is, in my opinion is he 100% behaved like a wrongfully accused person, I think. Mm-hmm. And Laura, I think you agree. Like, he knew his rights. Yeah. He yeah. aggressively pursued action against the town, even just for being a suspect, like before he'd been. Yeah. I mean, isn't that exactly what someone would do if they thought they were being wrongfully targeted by, like, an overzealous investigation? Especially the interrogation scene that we saw. I mean, that was just, that's where like the rage Richter scale started to like, whoop, because I was like, I'm watching him and like, he knew his rights. He's trying to advocate for himself. And then like, I think I was like, Ken came in and I said, these cops are penis waivers because they were like <laughs> standing in his way. And he's trying to leave. He doesn't have an you're attorney. He no, says he's done. You're free to go. And they're standing in front of him in this menacing, threatening way where he's clearly not free to go. Well, you're you're going to be held on here for a minute anyway. So Gary, please. Well, I'm, I'm telling you right now. Listen to me. Okay? See, so you guys came and asked me to come down yeah, every night. And now, yes or no, Mark? Yes or no? Yes, we did. But I want to explain something to you, okay? Okay. Um, we can do things the easy way or the hard way around here. Okay. But the thing that, like you said, Rebecca, made me feel like he's he's acting appropriately. It's like he didn't lose his temper. He didn't lose his cool. He's just like, I need to go now. I got to go to practice. Like the testosterone in that room was driving me bonkers. And then when they took his phone, oh my God, that's when I like, I don't know about you guys, but when they took his phone and he was waiting for the attorney to call back and they're like, oh, they can just call the station. I'm like, oh, anyway. Yeah, I, I thought that he was uh, very believable as someone who, you know, didn't really have something to do with it, seemed really taken aback. But I think that if we imply that there is a way that a person who didn't do it acts, we're also saying there is a way that someone did do it acts. That's a good point, yeah. And, then, and, we, and we often mistake things like, oh, well, they did this. That was suspicious. They obviously did it. 
So I have a kind of off the wall uh, other question for you guys, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to. But um, one of the things that I think the documentary, another missing piece for me was one of the things they hinted at at the beginning, and then they just completely dropped it, was that Garrett was having problems in school, maybe with some of his peers, or there was some there was something going on there. And they also talked about the sort of prevalence of that game that the kids were playing, like the choking game, the knockout game, or like these like sort of, you know, peer to peer like things that were happening. Mm-hmm. And there's like a little bit of a hint that uh, in the documentary that some people think it may have just been another kid that killed him, like in some sort of weird circumstance. When I think about the circumstances of the crime and the fact that like when the people were knocking on the door, they could hear movement in the house and that somebody was able to sort of like nimbly get out a window and get away. Like the idea of it being another kid like is not implausible to me. And I kept thinking over and over again, like who wouldn't have their DNA in the system? Who wouldn't have fingerprints in the system? Who isn't somebody that cops would look like? They wouldn't look at a a kid. Like I just kept thinking that and I felt like that's kind of what I wonder if is what happened but i may it may not be right to sort of have a theory but that's as close as i can get to that what do you think kevin yeah it's the same i mean what's the title of the documentary who killed garrett phillips and i think we might not have, we'll never know i don't think we'll ever know really you don't think we'll ever yeah. know i don't think we'll ever know you don't think they'll use familial dna to use the dna they have to like find family members and then narrow it down to some people no i mean it was interesting though that that came up and after we had just talked about this in exhibit a about dna blends and the fact that their guy mentioned it, they fucked right? it up basically. Yeah, but it's like a, <laughs> you know, the one of the one of the samples is Garrett, and the other, you know, cannot statistically be ruled out by several hundred thousand. But whatever the hell, it's a whole. It could be anybody, and that includes Nick Hillary. But so. even the court threw it out. Like in the, the south, in the south, that would have stayed right. in. Let's be real. Like in like uh, Mississippi, right. like in the right. in the you know. But it, it was it was portrayed as like a loophole or something like that, yeah. and it's just no. It's actually just bad science. Mm. What do you think, Laura? Do you have any sort of sense of of something that should have been explored in the documentary? I don't want to say like what's your theory of the crime. Like I just well, did. I don't want to put you on the spot like that. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I definitely think that that boyfriend comes across as super sketchy because he ha- did have some abusive tendencies in the past. But the thing that because I after I watched this I of course looked up articles to read a little bit more so I don't know what their taping schedule was so this may have been something regarding their production but I did see that after you know Nick Hillary is exonerated there was your your public radio uh, counterpart there did some follow-up stories about them saying we're gonna look into other suspects and what has happened with that so I would like to know where that stands now because you know they did follow up on that in the media asking like okay now you said you're gonna follow up on other suspects what's going on and it doesn't really seem like that's happened so I guess my fear is like this narrow thinking of that it's Nick Hillary and he got off on a loophole is perhaps precluding them from actually doing a more thorough investigation at this point thoughts Toby it's just sort of an imperfect documentary, I think. I think it's another one of those ones that you're getting one side of a story, and I think it's it's the correct side, but it is just one side, and I think it's hard to really evaluate. Wait, wait, I have to interrupt you. How can you say you got one side? I mean, by my clock, almost, like, I don't want to say half, but a good portion of the documentary were cops, the prosecutor, uh, John, whatever his face is, the the other suspect and the uncle. It was a large, a lot of voices for the the anti Nick Hillarys. I thought there was a, a large number of voices and a very. Yeah. I thought there was a good opportunity for the audience to actually hear what Both their sides. point of view of the case was. That's my opinion. You don't agree with that, Toby? Uh, yeah, I guess. Well, I I don't know. I thought they all came off as assholes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest, I mean. <laughs> How'd you feel about that prosecutor lady, Toby? Was she up there with Nancy Grace? I mean, mean, she she was ridiculous. You know, the detective, who I guess now is a police chief, he just, you know, he seemed like one of those guys who's, who thinks he's, he's smarter than everybody, but isn't like the whole thing about the limp. He's like, oh, you know, you can see that he's like hiding his limp by walking normally. And, you know, that was really, it's like, dude, listen to yourself. I don't know. If you compare it to the way Nick was shown, like, just think about, like, you didn't see a whole lot of that, of those detectives, like, hanging out at home, like, playing with their kids. That's a question of access, right? Is what that is. 
how do you know? I mean, right. they don't say we we wanted to go and follow this guy home and hang out with him in his kitchen, but he wouldn't let us. They just don't do it. Well, that being said, why don't we do what we do and we can each give our thumbs up or thumbs down definitive final review of who killed Garrett Phillips on HBO. And since, Toby, you were just talking about your feelings, do you just want to cap that off and give us your thumbs up or thumbs down review of this documentary? Should our listeners check it out? What do you think? You know, it's like what would normally be a thumb sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, well, why can't it be? It can be if we want it to be. It's fine. Yeah, I kind of thumb some sideways. I mean, I thought some of it was really good. It's, it's it's in a lot of ways, it's very well done, and I think they got a good story and stuff. I just kind of felt, even maybe if there wasn't more to it, that they did this weird thing where they would kind of tease these little bits, which I think undermined a little bit of their authority when they didn't kind of follow up on them, and you're left kind of wondering. What is this all about? Hmm. So that's, that's kind of where I Thumb fall. Thumbs sideways for you then. What about you, Laura Bricker? Where are you? Thumbs up, down, or sideways for who killed Garrett Phillips on HBO? I'm a thumbs up. Like I said, I like these HBO two-part true crime documentaries that we're seeing this summer. I feel like they're cases that I may have heard of like you know, somewhat quickly, but I didn't know that much about. And in this particular case, um, I liked the access that they had to all the people that were involved in the case. I loved Nick Hillary's attorney Mm. from New York and the female attorney where they married. I wasn't quite clear, but um, either way, I loved both of them. Oh, his lawyer friends? Not the one from New York, but his actual friends who were both like his advocates? Lawyers. Yes, they were so Well, they came up. They were pretty badass. I love those people. You know, I think it gave a good snapshot of this case. And if you wanted more information like I did, you can go read some more information. But, you know, it's definitely um, some good um, rage-walking material. I... Like this documentary for the most part. I didn't think it was perfect. I did think there were some threads, some like seeds that were dropped that I would have loved a little more follow up on rather than some of the things they followed up on more extensively. I thought the whole like soccer culture, you know, a sort of hero coach in this like largely college town that he would be the target of this investigation and that he would get all of this support from all these moneyed people who believed in his case was telling. And again, that was kind of a kernel that they didn't really explore. But there was enough here for me to like enjoy it, to be interested in it. And even though I knew the outcome only because I knew about the case, the way it was revealed over the two episodes was interesting. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up. What about you, Kevin? I'm also going to give it a thumbs up. I thought that it was yeah, imperfect. It wasn't the best documentary, but it did leave me on the edge of my seat. I thought it was pretty suspenseful, not knowing how it turned out. I mean, there were a couple of the scenes like, you know, being at home and getting milk for the kids' breakfast that I thought kind of felt fell flat. Yeah. Um, but just, again, having sort of the inside look at the defense in real time was uh, was interesting enough. And Laura's right, it was definitely rage-worthy. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or a random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Moving on, L.A. Times Studios is back with another podcast looking at the strange case of an unidentified man who's been living in a vegetative state for 15 years. In Room 20, host Joanne Farian tries to learn the name of the patient known for many, many years only as 66 Garage. What if no one knew who you were? Could you give me your name? What is your name? What is your name? 
and you had lost the ability to tell them. In Coronado, nursing home employees have cared for a man for years, but they have no idea who he is. Life changed in an instant for one man. It happened in the California desert nearly two decades ago on a clear morning in June. He's been kept alive on life support ever since. Room 20 looks to uncover the circumstances around the accident that left 66 Garage in a state of permanent care and find his true identity. The podcast also doubles as a journey for self-reflection for the host and also tells the story of undocumented immigrants in America. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Room 20, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the time code listed in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Now, one thing I want to say, Kevin, is something that I noticed when I was listening to the podcast. This is an L.A. Times studio production. Mm -hmm. It is not an L.A. Times newsroom podcast, which, uh, for instance, Dirty John was reported by an L.A. Times reporter. This is a project I believe the L.A. Times has set up a podcast studio to sort of like make content, partner with podcast companies, drive subscriptions, generate revenue, and that's a, a, a business. It's a smart thing, yeah, yeah. Right. So this is, but it's not like L.A. Times reporting. As we hear in the podcast, Joanne Farian quit her job and just decided to do this. You know, this idea that like a, a story that's bigger but wrapped as a mystery for true crime listeners, like that's what that's what this is, right? Because it's set up as a mystery, but it's actually kind of something else. First of all, props to the LA Times Studios because whenever they come out with something, the story idea, you know, the the concept about what the story is, is really great. I mean, if you think about Dirty John or even, you know, Man in the Window, and especially this one, the you know, the log line about he's been in a you know vegetative state for fifteen years. I mean, no one knows who he is. That's really interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting, they, concept. It's an interesting concept. I don't think they always mm-hmm. ex- execute it well, but I have mm-hmm. to say like Man, that's like some really good stuff. You mean the idea? The idea. <laughs> the idea. The idea that's was really good. good. Yeah. Let's be clear. I it think we're intriguing. about to pivot to the left on that. Um, Laura, episode one. I just got to say it. I hated episode one so much of this podcast. I think Me that too. you did too. Well, I feel bad because I, I, you know, this is a review show, Lara. Don't feel bad. We've we've taken some heat for being alleged experts on things, but I'm. This is just my personal opinion. I didn't need to listen to that amount of the host sitting in the room listening to the guy on the vent and talking to him like he was a cat. Mm. I really don't know how to speak to Garage. I feel uncomfortable and self conscious. So often he looks as though he's choking to death. You're uncomfortable? I don't know what I'm supposed to say. There is nothing that makes sense to say, but I also can't just sit by and watch. He looks as though he's suffering. They're going to help you. Someone's going to come and help you, okay? They're going to come and help you. You know, it hurts. It hurts. Yeah. I know. I'm speaking to him like he's a child, but that's what he looks like. I feel like the premise of this podcast is so promising and it's it's really intriguing. Like, who is this guy? How has he been there for 15 years? And then there's the premise of these vent farms, which again, like ethically, like that's like a whole story unto itself. Then there's the issue of, you know, we're going to find out that this guy is an immigrant trying to move here from Mexico when he gets in this crash. But what I really hated about this was I felt like a lot of it was staged. And I don't know if anyone else came across with that sort of like feedback. But, you know, I think it was just the premise of the story kind of got lost when the reporter um, became personally involved with feeling like she made a connection with this man in this room. And it kind of blurred the narrative a little bit. So it became a little bit confused. Does that make sense? Sorry, oh, it I, I totally, totally makes there. sense. And I'm going to add another layer of hate of the first episode to your hatred of the first episode. There should never be protracted sounds of somebody suctioning out a ventilation machine in a podcast. That should yes. not be Thank a sound you. that listeners Thank you. Thank are subject you. to hearing. I'm sorry. It might be what happened. It should not be a sound. It can be a sound that you hint at, play briefly. It should not be a sound you hear. For, that was just, it was impossible listening it was impossible and anybody who has like a gag reflex or any sort of sense of like there are certain things that sort of bring up traumatic memories of being in a hospital that's not something you should play second to that but more important are the ethics of taping somebody in a vegetative state who cannot consent to being recorded and in addition 
taping the audio of other patients who cannot consent to being recorded in a medical care setting. We hear a woman moaning down the hallway. We hear all sorts of patient and medical care sounds in this. And we are never told explicitly that I have permission to do this, which to me, A, HIPAA, hello, HIPAA laws, like there's a whole like thing around like violating stuff. kind of threw HIPAA out in this. But I, and I, I know they didn't use names and I know that was a big part of it was they didn't use last names and all that stuff. But there was something very distasteful to me about hearing the sounds of suffering in a podcast just to set a scene. I do feel like if Joanne Farron, we might find out later, and I think later there's a scene where there's different people in the room having a birthday party. Clearly, I know she's recording, so there might be some layer of consent there, but she never reveals it. So I was left with a like complete sense of horror that we were hearing this in episode one. I found it challenging and ethically problematic. Uh, Toby, what did you think? Well, you think that incommunicative guy who she talks about masturbating, do you think he gave consent? No, I don't. Oh. I don't think that he did. It's just this is one of the weirdest podcasts I think we've reviewed. Mm. You know the whole start where she's, you know, she's supposedly reporting on this case, but it mostly seems to be her sitting around that room. And I'm like, what do you think is about to happen? Well, she doesn't speak Spanish, which she tells us a million she, times. You don't, you don't speak Spanish. The guy, the guy's been in a vegetative state for f- 15 years because you're hanging out with him for a week. Nothing's going to change. He's going to come out of it, Toby. Yeah, he's been picking says, up English all like the she time. She says, "Well, you know." <laughs> I know from my research that people in vegetative states can sit up and they can, you know, smile and frown and cry and all this stuff. But when when Garage followed my finger, when I waved it in front of his face, I felt like there was something different. There was something in there. Oh, Jesus. On day four, I'm at Garage's bedside and I speak to him. Hi, do you remember my name? Joanne? Yeah? I'm still speaking to him as though he's a baby, because in many ways, he acts like one. He kicks his right foot up and down, turns his head to follow movements and sounds, turns his head to look at me. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't I don't know. It was, it was just super strange. And the whole thing, it was just in like decision after decision that just had me scratching my head and like just use of time that I couldn't figure out what the point was. Like that, that birthday party was just went on and on and on. It was infantilized. We'll Staged. Probably, yeah. There was other stuff where I was like, why am I listening to this? So I also had problems with episode one. Now, first of all, I think the investigative journalism side of this, I mean, is actually pretty good because mm-hmm. she does go out and solve this mystery of who is this guy. She goes to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Goes to Mexico. Mm-hmm. That part of it is really good. Yeah. But, and it's horrible in episode one. It doesn't find the balance between being a story about somebody and the reporter's personal journey. She's trying to make it so much about her feelings, what she thinks of this guy, how it relates to the death of her mother, and I just found it so self-indulgent. You know, it was kind of a me, me, me kind of thing. I'm talking about this guy, but it's really my perception's of him, and part of it is because you know you could say, well, what else can she do? You can't have any action, right, in room twenty, right? Because the people there don't talk, they don't get out of bed, they don't really make noise. I mean, they make gurgling sounds, which we don't they need make to hear, noise, which we but should they never don't hear. communicate. Is right. what I mean. So, how do you move the story forward with that? Mm. There's not a lot one can do there, but I just thought it's like she's just like trying to work out her own shit, and we're not really seeing. There's a lot of telling. Well, the problem with that is that is like a trope because this is like advice that I will give. And I remember sitting like in Bearbrook edits and saying this, like you do at some point when you're doing an investigative story or a long form story, you do have to let the audience know why you like, why are you like, what is your intersection with this? You know, and like I think about like Josh Dean and the clearing, like he tells us like I was going to write a magazine article about this. And then it got crazy, so I made a podcast. Like, that's it. That's all we need to know. You know, Sarah Koenig tells us that she got the letter from Rabia. Yeah. And, and I think it's okay to say, like, oh, yeah, I, I was really concerned about this. Right. And, I mean, think about the way Sarah Koenig does it as right. well. You know, you can talk about your opinions and your feelings and your thoughts, but it ends up sort of, it, you know, it's like too- Toby gave the, the great example of tracking the finger. And when I see it, I think this is, there's something real going on behind here that science doesn't understand. Yeah. And talking to him like a baby was just was very uncomfortable. Crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let's just get the rest of the hate stuff out of the way, because I do want to talk about some of the stuff that I think is more promising in the okay. show. So She speaks all the time in the present tense when she's talking about stuff in the past. I hate that. I know. Okay. She, she did that when she was... Uh, She's like, wow, I found this newspaper article and this is what it said. And then she like reads it all in the present tense. And it's like, you know, that's not the way it was written. Well, it may have been if it was just like an, a wire item. Because otherwise she's a very strong writer. And there's times when she's trying to demonstrate how good of a writer she is. <laughs> like, give me an example. Like when they, she shows up in the desert. The intersection looks desolate. The desert sky is a perfect blue. The smell of cow dung hangs in the air. There are feedlots in the area where cattle are fattened before slaughter. I mean, okay, there's... There's, you know, some good writing there, but it also kind of seems to want to call attention to itself. Mm. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out, like, where what's going on here? I'm like, oh, yeah, she's Canadian. Someone knows something. All right. Well, let me just, uh, can I just do a quick bullet list of weird formatics? We don't need to talk about it at length. Do it. There are no beats between sentences or moments or anything happening. Like, you need to have beats and pauses, music trails, anything to let us hear what we just heard before you plow on. Number two, there's a full intro at the beginning of every episode that says, I'm Joanne Farian. This is Chapter 3 of Room 20, a new podcast from the LA Times Studios. It's about a man called 66 Garage who lay in a hospital bed for 15 years, unidentified. In episode three, we know. Just start the episode. We don't need the whole intro that should have been in episode. I starting with episode three. Exactly. Terrible again with <laughs> this uh, production company, Ad placement, sometimes super awkward. I have a quick clip of that that I want to play. What you don't hear in the recording is Ed choking back tears. A few weeks later, I go to Ohio to meet Ignacio's sister. Isn't traveling stressful? There's horrible airport traffic, long flights and uncomfortable seats. And And then I also have a lot of questions about... um, Joanne, she says she quit her job. She's doing this. You never explain why. That's a formatic sort of editing problem. And then also it's just like some sloppy details. Like she says the birth date was listed as as 0101. And then she said, but he was born three months later in April. And I'm like, that's actually four months later. (laughs) There's actually just some tiny. And there's a lot of those like tiny things that sort of take me out of the story and make me just like, oh, But can we please just talk about some substantive stuff that I think is promising here? Okay. Because there is a story here about undocumented immigrants, uh, the sort of the perils that they face crossing the border. She touches on that. She touches on our dependence on undocumented labor to supply the food chain in America. She touches on California's publicly funded healthcare system that has allowed this guy to get $4 million worth of care. And then I do think there is a story here about the importance of identity. You know, he gets a name. You know, we know he has a name. He has a sister. He comes from a place. And in America right now, the conversation around immigrants is as a mass, as a group. And this is a story focusing on one person and what happened to him. I think there's value there. She didn't go deep in any of those things. I wish she had. But I think that if there's value here, that's what it is. Does anybody agree with me on that? I agree with you. And that's I feel like if we had trimmed out all of the sitting in the room, taking notes and listening to what was happening in the room and done a quick, he's here. It's really sad. This is what the scene is like at the vent farm. And then transitioned into how did he get here? Why was he trying to get here? What's going on with I mean, I want to know, like, what the fuck? 15 years and nobody else tried to figure out who this guy was. I mean, that's crazy to me. So I feel like there was like bigger story lines here that like, and she she alludes to that. She's like, this is crazy. Nobody's followed up in 15 years. But to me, that's a big story. I mean, this guy has been there for 15 years. Nobody knows who he is. He doesn't have a name. Why? The, The vent farm in itself is a story. Like ethically, sort of the, you know, ethics of making people stay alive like this. These storylines could have been followed up on in a much different way than they were. And we could have trimmed out all of the awful stuff sitting in that room that we didn't necessarily need to hear. I mean, we've all had personal journeys as reporters and storytellers, but I don't feel like that was the story that needed to be told here. You know, I I think there's a lot of possibilities for things that they could have done with this story. And it just didn't seem like they did much of any of them. Like, it feels like you're kind of grasp. I don't mean you, but it feels like a person listening to it 
has to kind of grasp to find what the importance of different things are because that doesn't seem to be the focus. Mm. The focus really seems to be his plight, finding a name for him. But then again, without much thinking or talking about what does that actually mean? Mm. What is accomplished by finding out what his name is? Right. You know, like wh- wh- why is that important? That, that seems like it'd be an interesting thing to talk about at least. I, I, think, I think, yeah. That, isn't that the central question of the yeah, the podcast. who is who this is guy? guy? And why so has right, been looking the, for him? Who he is. It's a central question, but what what does it mean? Well, I guess we, is we, the thing. It's right. like, so you know his name is Ignacio. What does that change? I mean, it changes a little bit because they find a relative. Right. This sort of euphoric reaction to, I've put a name to him now. Now he's not 66 Garage. It doesn't really change his life at all. Like, who is it important to? Not practically, but it, it provides a sense of dignity. If he lived as John Doe, um, yeah. You know, that's one thing, but his name was 66 Garage. Which was dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I think 66 Garage is a better name than Room 20 for this podcast. Yeah. But that was confusing. That was a fantastic turn of phrase. But in any event, it provides some dignity. And I think yeah, part of it being one you, of the Evan. bigger themes is how do we treat these people? Which people? Yes. The people yeah, who the, the, the patients. And undocumented immigrants, both. No, no, no. Yeah, how do we I treat, think it's both. Right, but the medical question is, right. how do we treat these people? They're going to be living in this state 20, 30, 40, 50 years like this. What kind of life can we give them? Do we want to give them? What kind of care can we give them? They're caretakers. I mean, I think that is the most important theme. It's the biggest theme. All these other things are tied to it. But if you're sitting in room 20, it's got to be about what is happening in Room 20? Just because it's the name of the podcast, I don't think that's the biggest theme. I think the biggest theme is the undock. I mean, I, it's funny that we disagree on that. You know, I, I don't want to name drop. I met Connie Walker this weekend. Uh-huh. And she talked about how Missing and Murdered is a story about indigenous people in Canada that she wrapped as a mystery in a true crime podcast so people uh-huh. would listen to her teaching us about this history, this part of Canadian history, right? I think that she is very ambitious in this podcast. She does go to the farms where Ignacio and like these different workers are to try to get answers. Maybe I just, because to me that was the most interesting stuff. Is that the most relevant? It's it's the most timely. Yeah. It's fashionable right now. But I think, I think there's a bigger thing that you got to look at too. I really want to get to the the just the part where we just say what we think. So I'm curious to know what you will all say. I just want to say you guys all talked about questions that were brought up and never answered. Joanne spends an inordinate amount of time chasing the question of why the birth date, why this age was said to be one yeah. thing, an inordinate amount of time. And then she says in episode five, I won't be able to answer that question. <laughs> and I'm like reporting, maybe not 101, but maybe like 202. Do not raise a question and pursue it forever if you know you're not going to answer the quite right. Like that is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she probably there's a lot of that. Before the first episode dropped, but then you along, should have known. But then along the way, there's stuff that's good and worth yep. listening. There really is. It's just it's in the pockets of the podcast and on the main part. All right. Well, <laughs> let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review for Room 20 from the L.A. Times podcast studios. I believe they partnered once again with Wondery on this show. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Room 20? Um, I hate to do this, but I, I'm going thumbs down because I just felt like after I get over, like, I want to know who this guy is. I just felt like the narrative in this particular podcast wavered all over the place and didn't really hit the focus point in terms of the story that I think needed to be told. And there was a lot of extra audio and information that I don't necessarily think contributed to moving the story forward. So uh, sadly, thumbs down. What about you, Toby? Yeah, I like I kind of feel like I listened to a different podcast than you guys did. And maybe that was part of the problem. Like there's these interesting things that you guys have all brought up that are kind of part of the podcast, but never really are engaged. Right. I mean, I think it's just sort of he lives on a vent farm and he's an undocumented immigrant who some people were killed and he was put into a veg- persistent vegetative state with an accident. And and then there's the, the whole agricultural thing. And, and you guys have brought up a bunch of interesting things, which I don't think she addresses hardly at all. It's just things that happen to be around this, this case of this guy who people don't really know who he is. So I, it just kind of felt like it could have gone in like 10 different interesting directions and didn't go in any of them. 
you know, I don't know why I feel bad, like being so negative about it, but I don't know. I thought it was kind of strange and it's a thumbs down. Yeah, I'm a thumbs down as well. Um, I will say there are parts of this podcast that are worth listening to. I actually wrote the podcast up for Vulture this week in our and podcast was and recommended episode five because I think there's stuff there around identity, around sort of the value of putting a name on a vegetative, undocumented immigrant. And the, what the podcast does really well is it reminds us that a conversation about a group of people is actually about a lot of individual people. And that's an important conversation to be having at this point. Um, so there's stuff of value in this show. That doesn't mean I'm giving a thumbs up to the show. I'm giving a thumbs down to Room 20. I think it had a lot of problems, not the least of which were ethical issues, which is for me top of list of issues when it comes to this reporting. If there's stuff that comes out in later episodes that resolves those ethical issues, that's fine. I think they should have been upfront about those things at the beginning. I have a lot of questions that I would ask the producers of this show if I were in a room with them. They would be respectful and interesting questions, but I have them nonetheless. So for me, it's a thumbs down. What about you, Kevin? I'm also a thumbs down. Sometimes you have a podcast where you've got a really nice, juicy steak, and then in order to fill out the rest of the time, it gets compacted with a bunch of hamburgers. This feels like a giant hamburger. And in order to fill out the rest, they put in steak. All these other sort of are just, tangents are way more interesting. Is this a butcher block ad? No, it's not. It's not. I, I, I you was thought sure I was going was. there. No, it's not. Yes. <laughs> no. I was like, he's just diving right in on, on this one. <laughs> okay, uh, I had that coming. I'll, this I'll admit. Free bacon for life. I'll admit. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, okay, maybe I'll just rephrase everything. Look, it has some really good elements, but the main thing about this is just too controversial. It's too ethically challenged. It's just a very, it's a flawed in a way that I just cannot recommend. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Now it's time for my favorite part of this little podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of the week. Of the week. <laughs> Police in Louisiana arrested 23-year-old Ashley Beth Rowland after she was accused of stealing from a man she lived with for a week. <laughs> I'm getting alarm bells already. The victim says he was in the shower when the woman swiped $5,000 and disappeared. After being caught, Roland made a confession of sorts. She admitted to taking her roommate's money, but when a female corrections officer did a body search, she discovered $6,233 in cash in her vagina, along with a bag In of, what? In her vagina. Oh, okay. I'm going to be... Body proud. But it's JJ. <laughs> along with a bag, by the way, of crystal meth. Oh. When confronted with the coochie contraband, Roland <laughs> said the money and drugs didn't belong to her and she doesn't know how they got there. What? <laughs> so, panel, this woman did not have an excuse for how the drugs wound up in her hoo ha. 
So, you know, let's come to her aid and give her one. Laura Bricker, what's her excuse? Help a lady out. Uh, Lola? No. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you a serious story here. When I was working in the newsroom full time, I do recall hearing a story about a woman who opened up a tampon and poof, there was some money inside. Ooh, wow. It may have been a drug smuggling case. I don't know, but it did in fact happen. So I'm just going to say, I mean, those little cardboard or plastic applicators, they can hide some contraband. You never know what's in there, right? Yeah. You never know. You better look. Toby Ball, what do you think? What should the reasoning be? How did all this stuff end up? All in there. Uh, I don't feel like I can answer this question. Don't <laughs> <laughs> be supposed to say it was planted. <laughs> there you go. What Kevin said. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What do you think? Oh, I'm never gonna sit down at the bus station again. <laughs> Whoa. All right, we should probably end it on that uh, very um, weird note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have two kittens of the week this week. From Lauren Hawkins, one of our listeners, has two new kittens, and they are crime-fighting kittens, Lieutenant Columbo and Nacho. I'm not sure where Nacho... Um, they are 13-week-old kittens. They love chasing each other, feathers and bells, and they're sisters and have matching orange spots on the end of their tails. And they are very adorable. All right. Well, Lara Bricker, if people want to reach out to you and submit their fine pets, cats, dogs, lizards, yaks, how can they reach you online? At Lara Bricker on Twitter. And Toy Ball, if people want to reach out to you and clap you on the back for not falling for the bait of that very cheap crime of the week this week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. What about you, Kevin? How could folks reach out to you and send you their pats on the back and tell you, glad to hear you're feeling better, Kevin. Don't be radioactive and get near me. <laughs> I am at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and you should join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. It's pretty awesome, but we also have a regular old Facebook page if you want to go there. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you'll get a lot of gossip in our Crime Writers On after show right now. You'll also get Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, and Lara Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, but not the closet in our basement, formerly known as Studio C, the place where I always talk to Kevin like the goddamn baby he is. <laughs> On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Think of something funny to say. Um, so you guys I'm working on my next um, leave it to Bricker Mm -hmm. and all I'm going to tell you it involves me tattooing somebody and um, (laughs) I'm just going to say there's video I can't it it might involve a Jimmy Buffett concert and um, it may have traumatized my child perfect my goodness can't wait Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.